Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lesson. And we have considered, we've been looking at the doctrine of sin, and this is our sixth and final lesson in this section. And so because of that, I wanted to kind of do sort of a summary of what we've looked at and then bring this to a close. We have defined sin as any lack of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. And so you see in that definition that right and wrong is based on the standard of God's word. It is, it is objective. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our emotions. It's not based on popular vote. It wouldn't matter if 99% of the country decided that something was okay. It doesn't matter. The standard is God's word. And we saw that that is exactly at that point that Satan attacked our first parents there in the garden temple. We saw that in the beginning, the sovereign Lord created this earth and created Adam as a vice regent, an image of God to represent him on earth, to rule and to subdue it in holiness and righteousness, having dominion over all the creatures that God had made. And he had placed Adam in this temple garden to keep it, to guard it. And there the omnipresent Lord would meet with Adam and reveal himself in a very special way, to have communion with Adam, to teach Adam the law. And the Lord also provided Adam with a queen, his wife, Eve. And together they would multiply, creating more image bearers, who in turn would multiply. And this would just go on and on, and in the process begin to grow the garden, to expand it, so that paradise would spread throughout the earth. And they did all this in the context of a covenant, as we saw. Man was never granted the liberty or freedom to rule how he saw fit, but was to do so according to God's law. And so in this covenant, you had promises, demands, sanctions, and a bond of life and death significance. Life, with, which encompasses both the physical and the spiritual, was promised to Adam and to his seed upon the condition of perfect and perpetual, or in perpetual obedience with obedience, again, being determined and defined by God and his law. And so Satan, whose presence in the garden, which should never have been, he should never have been there had Adam been doing his job to begin with, we saw he begins to have these casual conversations with Eve. And it's all centered around the word of God by casting doubt on it, by calling it into question. And then as we noted some of the lies that Satan sold to man, one was that God does not govern and preserve all his creatures and all their actions. Satan sold man the lie that God was not going to hold him accountable to his word, to his law. And then there was the lie that God was holding something back from man, that God was enslaving man to rules and regulations and thereby keeping man from exercising true freedom and liberty. And then there was the lie that man can determine right from wrong on his own without any reference to God in his word. And Adam, knowing full well that these were lies, revolted against the authority of God by showing contempt for his word. And to borrow the words of Paul in Romans, he exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then from there, we saw the effect that this has on man. You see, the interesting thing about man and our nature is we were created, we were designed, we were wired to be worshipers. And we were designed to reflect what we worship. 
We will never, ever get away from that. That is why no matter where you go on this planet, no matter the deepest, darkest jungles, at any time in history, you will always find religious people. You will find worshipers. None of us escape it. It's how we're wired. The problem is not religion, per se. It's false religion. The problem is with who or what we worship. The problem is that, is that we have shown contempt for the one true God, and we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, as Paul says, but become foolish in our thinking and exchange the truth and the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creatures. And then as we saw last week, we see that this exchange manifests itself in the creation of idols, where men will take stone or wood and, and carve figures that look like man, that look like creatures, and then they call that their God. And God mocks these foolish idols. We read that in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Deaf, dumb, and blind idols. But as we also noted, something else occurs in idolatry. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And so man who is wired to worship and reflect what he worships, now reflects those deaf, dumb, and idols that he has created. Understand, there's no life outside of God. He is the source. It is he, as we saw in Genesis, who thinks us into being. He is life. And it is in him, as Paul says, to the very religious men of Athens, there in Acts 17, that we live, move, and have our being. And so being then God's offspring, Paul then goes on to say, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He is life. And so to reject God, to reject his word, is to hate life, and it is to love death. Proverbs 8. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And then as we saw last week, that is exactly what we come to embrace and reflect in our lives and our rebellion. Remember, we not only worship, but we reflect. And so we become like those deaf, dumb, and blind idols that we revere, lifeless, dead in our sins. Oh, we have eyes, just like that carved figure has eyes, but we're blind to his glory and to his truth. We have ears. We can hear the sounds coming out of the prophet's mouth, but we fail to understand his words. We have mouths and even boast great things but yet we speak nothing but lies and foolishness, words without wisdom. We have arms, hands, legs, feet, but with them we are swift to practice lawlessness and not only practice it ourselves, but give approval to those who do the same. For we have charged that all, says Paul in Romans 3, 
Both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, this statement here in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. It's interesting when you tie that in with idolatry. Because not only does man exchange these false gods and idols for the one true God, and then reflects these deaf, dumb, and blind idols by becoming spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind ourselves, but then man turns around and points his finger to God and says to him, you're, you're blind, you're deaf, you're dumb. And thus we wage war against God. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we see this war spoken of. There, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. He writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know uh, God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's interesting here is that in verse 19, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29. Well, listen to what Isaiah says in that context. He says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with, uh, to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. That's the part that Paul quotes. But notice what he goes on to say in the next verse. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. You see what's going on here? God is life. It is God who sees. It is God who hears. It is God who understands. There is no life outside of him. And when we reject him and his word, we embrace death. We become dead in our sins. We become deaf, dumb, and blind to God, to life, to truth. But it doesn't just stop there. We then point our wicked finger back to the one true God and claim that he doesn't see. He doesn't hear. He doesn't understand. The potter is now regarded as nothing but clay. The thing made says to him who made him, you didn't make me. You have no understanding. You don't know us. You don't see us. We will not be called into account. It's the lie of the garden all over again. And so we go on in our sad, pathetic, 
self-contradictory lives, living as if the one true God doesn't exist, with a false sense of security, a false sense of love and tolerance, a false sense of life and liberty. And yet we are nothing more than lovers of death and agents of corruption, lies, and deceit. And then we saw from that fall of man in the garden, we see sin spread rapidly throughout the earth. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And in Genesis 8, 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. King David would go on later to write Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He also wrote in Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so Joe, uh, Joe Moorcraft writes, All people in the whole world throughout history are sinners from their conception in the entirety of their lives and beings, except for Jesus Christ. Well, what is the connection between Adam and his sin and plight and the sinfulness of all his descendants, in essence, the human race? The answer to this question is found in Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. There Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Whereas by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice verse 15, the contrast, Adam, by the trespass of the one, the many died. Verse 16, judgment arose out of the one trespass that leads to condemnation unto all men. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one, death reigned through the one, that is Adam. Verse 18, through one trespass, judgment came unto all men unto condemnation. And verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were appointed sinners. Scripture here is very clear. There is a solidarity that exists between Adam and all the rest of mankind that came from him by ordinary generation. Adam, whose name in Hebrew is man, was appointed as our federal head, our legal representative in that covenant that we spoke about there in the garden. And his failure in the covenant became our failure. 
And so we read that in our confession, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Now, the immediate response by many people, if not most, is, well, that doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem fair. And you remember, I talked about this before in lessons years back. I don't remember when it was. But we, we looked at this, this idea of legal representation. Is that really the problem that we have? Or is there something else going on here? Because I don't, I don't think that's really the problem that we have. I mean, we, we practice legal representation Today in our culture, you think of the power of attorney, for example, we, where we authorize someone to act on our behalf. And if you remember, I gave that analogy back then. That suppose I hired someone to take out inroads, to murder him. So the guy does the job and he gets caught and then they trace it back to me. Well, how many of us would have a problem with me uh, getting arrested even though I didn't pull the trigger? I don't know if anyone would have a problem with that. So I don't think the problem is, is, is not that we have Adam representing us, but I think we have a problem with it because one, we didn't have any say in the matter. We weren't even alive when it occurred. And then two, the guy that was chosen for us messed up. I mean, if he hadn't messed up, we, we would all be high-fiving each other, singing the praise of Adam. <clears throat> but the point is we seem to think that if we had a say in the matter, if we could have chosen our own representative, or, even better, hey, I'll just do it myself. Put me in the garden. I wouldn't have messed up. You know, if I had been there in the garden, I, I would have slapped that serpent down the minute he popped his head through the gates. But you know what? You'd be wrong to think that. You know why? How, you know how I know that? You say, how do you know that's hypothetical? How in the world could you possibly know? If I had been there, it would, the result would have been different we'll go back to our first lesson in this series. What did we discuss there? Paragraph one of chapter six. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan's sin in eating the forbidden fruit. In this their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory. That's why we started there in that first lesson. That is why we made such an emphasis on this when we discussed the primary governing principle behind God's plan and thus the governing principle of creation. If it had been you or me in the garden temple there in the beginning, the result would have been exactly the same because God purposed that for his glory. And so it should be enough for us to know that God's choice of Adam as our representative, it was fair, it was holy, it was righteous, it was just and good, because it perfectly fulfilled the purpose for which God designed it. And what is the flip side to having Adam represent us? What glory is in view here? Again, let's go back to Romans 5. Notice the contrast. Verse 14, Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, and the gift by grace abounded unto the many, which is of the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, the ones receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. 
verse 18, through one righteous act, that is the righteous act by Christ, the free gift came unto all men, unto justification of life. In verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness and that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In some, the answer is it's a new Adam, a new creation, a new federal head. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's first creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's the solution. The new creation in Christ. The second person of the Trinity, whom Paul calls the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, he takes on our nature, a reasonable soul and body, so that the man, Jesus Christ, who is united to the Godhead, subjects himself to that law. He perfects obedience. He subjects himself to the wrath of God. He dies as a substitutionary atonement for those whom the Father has chose. Then he rises from the dead to ascend into heaven at the Father's right hand, there in the temple of God, the heavenly temple, and exercises all authority over heaven and earth as prophet, priest, and king. And then the Spirit applies the benefits of that salvation to his elect at the appointed time. It's what we've been saying all along. We're right back to that purpose, that goal. The last Adam successfully does what the first Adam failed to do. And it is this new creation that is going to supersede the old. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, back to Paul in Acts 17. You remember where he's talking to those men in Athens. He would go on to say, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, that old creation, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There it is, resurrection from death. Friends, this is where it's all heading, a new heavens and a new earth, where we will be singing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one new man, the last Adam, and not that of a mere man, where every tear will be wiped from our eyes, where death will be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore. The reverse of the curses that the first Adam brought upon us. Where everything and then some that was promised in the beginning is now realized in the one man, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God.
And so do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to partake of that? Repent of your sins. Repent of your rebellion against God. Repent of your contempt for his word, for his law. And then call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you because it's by only being found in him, the last Adam of a new creation, that salvation can be had. We just sung it in the hymn, when the needy seek him, he will mercy show. Yea, the weak and helpless shall his pity know. He will surely save them from oppression's might, for their lives are precious in his holy sight. Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. And then lastly, Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, you have ears to hear, let him hear. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Turn to Christ and repent of your sins. Well, that concludes our discussion of the doctrine of sin there as we wrap it up. And Lord willing, uh, Pastor JP will come to us uh, next week and transition now into that covenant of grace where we will begin to look more detail that whole uh, configuration of the covenant and, and the grace that is brought to us by the Lord Jesus Christ.